Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Ashling B. I am what I call, after a few drinks, what science would call a bit of a vomity Jane. (laughs) That and more. But before that, you know, trips to the post office have probably become second nature to you. I don't know about that. They may seem easy because you've been doing it for a while. (laughs) They don't seem easy if you live in New York City. But think of the hassle, the the driving there, the waiting, the, (laughs) the finding parking. Listen, you know there's a much better... You goddamn Mickey Ficky well know. There's a much better way. It's called Stamps.com. Stamps.com is the easy and convenient way to get posted right from your goddamn desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own motherfucking computer and printer. With Stamps.com, there's no cock-sucking guesswork. They make it easy to get exact postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail the instant you're Bitch ass needs it. No more expensive shit dick postage meters to lease. And no more trips to the ass bitch post office. You have to try it. We use Stamps.com at risk and the Story Studio. And right now you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com, shit fuck. Enter risk. Now here's the show. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Whoa, whoa, whoa! 
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Jamie XX behind me now. We're calling this week's episode Out of Control. Four beautifully different voices. We were talking about voices just last week, and oh my God, the, the support emails that you guys sent in and the tweets, the love you sent in. We love you back so very much. Thank you all. But three very beautifully different voices on today's episode with stories that have some big surprises in them. You might also be wondering, oh, is this that episode where we get to hear Kevin back in his drinking days vomiting? Yep. <laughs> that, that That's gonna happen at some point on this episode. Oh, uh, one little announcement is that if you go to eBay right now and you look up the state MTV autographs, you'll see that I am selling four good as new headshots of the state that we all autographed in our last week at MTV for the sake of history. And I just found them recently and I thought, what the hell? I'll, I'll auction them off. So look for them. They are there right now. The state MTV autographs. Look that up on eBay. Another random thing is that I am fascinated recently by some of these uh, news reports I've been reading about microdosing. If anyone out there has a microdosing story or just knows someone who knows something about it, get in touch with me at Kevin at show.com. Now, in a little bit, we are going to hear from one of our favorites, the remarkable Shashi Muso. Shashi shared that mind-boggling LSD overdosing story that we put on a recent Best of Risk episode. But before Shashi, we're going to have Ashling B, who shared this next story at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles. Now, Ashling is Irish. If you look her up online, her name is spelled A-I-S-L-I-N-G-B-E-A. So here she is now with a story we call Vomity Jane. As Beowulf said, I'm Irish and therefore from the U fucking K. Um, yeah, happy St. Patrick's Day to you too. That is not part of the UK, guys. Just a bit of geography lessons. There was a big war. Loads of people died. It's a really sensitive subject. But hello, Canada. Um, my story of cruelty is kind of the way in life sometimes the things you love can also be the things that hurt you the most. Uh, which I think, mm, girl, um, we all know how that is. And one of the things I love the most in the world is the drink. I love drinking. Uh, and not like, like, oh, what, soda? No, like, I've been drinking, I've been drinking. Like, I love alcohol so much. I really, I just, my personality's better. I'm a much more fluid dancer. Everything's just better when I'm drinking. And I'd love for that not to be the case, but it just is a uh, fact. Um, but the problem is, and I've only put two and two together now, kind of 20-odd years in drinking that um basically i am what i call after a few drinks what science would call a bit of a vomity jane 
when I have a few drinks. And I really, and so tonight, I'm, I'm sort of going to tell you, the very first time I ever got drunk, and last time I got drunk to the point where I really regretted, and it was just so cruel on my body. And I think it normally happens when I'm very emotional, and then I drink, and then the vomit occurs the next day. And it's re- it gets really, really bad. The first time I ever... Um, drank I was 13 and I was very very sad because uh, up to three girls in my class had decided that I had a head like a man uh, and I, I was heartbroken guys it was the saddest thing ever and I was just standing looking at myself in the mirror going I'm looking like a man in the mirror it was awful like I was conv- and I did kind of look like a man like I've kind of like this hair lip at the side I had a giant big head I'd recently gotten a short like I look like a man so it was fair enough but it was very sad and it was the same time I also got my first job which was myself and my best friend were going to earn five pounds being waitresses at her mother's birthday party where there was going to be seven people and we had to sort of carry the plates of cake around the party. So it was a big deal, guys. It was going to be my big break. And um, basically, it was also our job to be like bartenders at this job. And her mother had gotten in loads of boxes of wine. Real classy party, guys. Um, Do you have boxes of wine here with a bag inside and then a tap? And we were sort of pouring out all these wines. And I was like, oh, God, Jenny, I don't know. It's just, don't know how I can go back to school on Monday. Everyone thinks I look like a man. And, you know, because my big head and my short haircut. And she's like, mm-hmm. I was like, at any point, Jenny, interrupt me and tell me I don't look like a man. Because you're supposed to be my only friend. She's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyways, I was like, God, Jenny, do you want to do you wanna get drunk? And she was like, yeah, of course I do. And I was like, yeah, me too. Cool, yeah. <laughs> How do we go about it? And she's like, we obviously must have to drink the wine from the box. And I was like, oh, yeah. So basically we started like pouring a cheeky little wine for her mother's friends. And then we go in and have a cheeky little sip of wine for ourselves. And we were both like lanky, skinny little things. And we were having these like goblets of vino <laughs> into our tiny little systems. And the one thing I remember was a gear change was at one point we got really giggly. And for what had seemed like a small room that we were kind of serving birthday cake around to, all of a sudden became the biggest room I'd ever been on and like I remember it was like really hard to kind of walk the plates over and I was like Jenny nobody's cotton on to a thing Shh. here you go Mrs. Murphy enjoy a cake Shh. nobody else could age Jenny's mother is oh. so we're kind of wandering around like this and at one point, I also remember, because Jenny and I were great fun, I remember Jenny putting the box underneath her top and holding me like a baby. And she pretended to breastfeed me from the tiny little tap. And I was like, I'm a baby, I'm a baby. And she'd go, here you go, little baby. And would pour the wine from the box. And I was like, more, mother, more. Anyways. Cut to about, I'd say, 20 minutes later. And I'm like, oh, Jenny, you know, I don't, don't feel too well. I don't feel too well. And that's when I felt it all coming up in my tummy. And I was like, listen, we're just going to do a couple of more canapes around the room. And then we'll be fine. And her mother, like, must have known. But she was a very, like, sound mother. She was, like, one of those cool people. But still, she was trying to have a nice party. And these two, like, maggots, like gremlins who'd been put into water were just throwing birthday cake around her sitting room and I was like I gotta go to the bathroom just go and go powder my 13 year old nose and I went into the bathroom 
and I sprayed. They had a carpeted bathroom, which I think is odd. So maybe it was a good lesson to them anyways. <laughs> Time to change your floor plan, madam. Um, and I remember spraying my dinner that I'd had all over the mirror as I looked at like my man's head. And like, who is this guy? Who is this guy? All over the bedroom mirror, our bathroom mirror, onto the carpet. And then I was like, oh my God, oh, what have I done? And I went into Jenny in the kitchen. I went, Jenny, I... And then I vomited it into her dishwasher. And as her mother always said afterwards, she's like, I just wish it hadn't had been a clean load of dishes that were ready to be taken out. I mean, because it just feels like such a waste of water. And I was like, fair point. No, you're dead right. I feel very guilty. And then, and this was the PS to resistance of my first time ever getting drunk. Then I went into her bedroom where we were both trying to pull ourselves together. And I vomited on her dog's head. (laughs) What type of breed of dog, sir? Good question. Uh, It was a red setter which was nice because what was coming out was like red, red wine all onto the dog's head. And like when her mother came in and all this kind of happened in quite a flashy amount of time, we were like running around her bungalow house going, what we going to do? And her mother kind of went, oh, oh, ah, the dog! And it was just this scary, we were like, oh, we didn't do it. It was a murderer came from the house and it everywhere. Brilliant, like our faces. Like still to this day, her mother says, if you'd seen how red your faces were, like stained red wine. <laughs> Children stained with red wine faces. And this dog going, huh? <laughs> Just awful. Now, Je- but Jenny, my friend, was the reason I continued to drink from quite a young age. Because her father uh, had an office in Dublin. Now, we lived out in the middle of the countryside, in the middle of nowhere. But her father had a taxi office in Dublin. And no word of a lie, guys, and you're not going to believe this. In that taxi office, and again, this is going to blow your mind, the office had a laminator. (gasps) What a laminator. I know, I can see the gasping around. People going, laminator, no way, no way. What year was this? What, 2070? A laminator. A laminator. Now... To get a fake ID in Ireland was very difficult. Like, obviously, because you have to be 18, and all we wanted to do was go out to the nightclubs. So, like, and no one in Ireland had a laminator. I'd say there was about seven laminators on the whole of the island. And, like, they all belonged to the mafia or something like that. Like, no one had a laminator. And, like, bouncers in the town were just so used to, like, 14-year-old guys coming up to them going, well, lads, do you have ID? And they kind of hand them pictures of their grandfather wrapped in a shower cap from a hotel going oh yeah here's here's my id as you can see it all checks out a very official looking so they've been used to terrible thing and so when jenny and i got our pictures with saying that we were born in like i don't know 1902 or whatever it was and then laminated like it looks so official so we started drinking really early because obviously we go up and they'd be like hiya girls do you have any ID and we'd be like yeah of course we have ID show them Jenny and then we'd show our IDs and they'd be like oh my god laminated these must have been made by the government of Ireland (laughs) in you go and so for years we got away with this with this shite but um the last time, and this is what's been made me like, while I've been in America, I've been trying not to drink as much. It hasn't gone very well. Uh, but be- just, at, just before Christmas, I broke up with my boyfriend. Uh, and it was around the same time that like Adele had her big hit. And like I couldn't open the door without going, hello, it's me. I was like, fuck off, it's you, Adele. Close the door. 
nobody needs your sadness round here. Um, so it was really awful. And I just, I was so heartbroken. I was walking around. And they say like, and this is why I think, they say like your tummy is like your second brain. If you're a woman, obviously it's in your penis if you're a man. But like they say, like that's where you're a lot of your, you know, so like that's why men vomit out their willies. And Anyways. Um, so, you know, but women, for women, a lot of your emotions sit there. And I was just so heartbroken. I spent the winter like in London where I live, just walking around with my heart as if it was like a goldfish in a bag from a fair. And I was like, don't touch it. Don't scare it. Don't scare it. It'll float to the top and it'll be dead. Ah. You know, I felt so vulnerable. But then I start, I was like, God, you can't be listening to Adele. You have to listen to the opposite. So you've got to listen to more Drake. And I was like, okay, Drake. Drake is, you know... And Drake got me out of my heartbreak, genuinely. I was like walking down the street, this lovely Irish white woman going, I got enemies, got a lot of enemies, got a lot of people, got a Drake, you know. And I was like, yes, that's, that's, that's my music. It re- relates to me, obviously. Um, and so he wrote it for me. And so uh, one night I was like, listen to all my Drake music. I was like, right, I'm going to tarp myself up. I'm going to go out. I'm going to get back on the horse. So I do, I'm not trying to like go horse riding again. That's a metaphor, sir. Um, and I'm going to go out. And so I went out. And again, I was sad, but I was pretending not to be sad. And I was drinking all of the drinks. And I was refusing to go home, absolutely refusing to go home. And I ended up at this lovely house party with a few friends. Like in my mind, I remember being so funny. Like I was just being really funny. And I was just chatting to everyone and I was making a couple of political points. Like I was really being very witty and funny. Like just mwah mwah. And um, it turns out that there was actual video footage of that night of me (laughs) sitting alone in a couch with what I thought was water but was actually a pint of vodka. And um, singing The Lighthouse Family on my own. (laughs) Just sitting there going, wake up and lift from the shadow, lift And that's all I was doing for the whole night. Apparently for a solid like half an hour, that's all I was doing. So anyways, at one point, my friend thought it might be good to put me into a car. And at first I was like, like a, a taxi to go home. And at first I was like, no! I'm never going to go home. I'm going to stay out for the rest of my life. Ooh, I'm so fancy. But then it was, it was time to go home. So she called a taxi. This was about 7 a.m. in the morning. And the taxi car arrived and it was my time to go out. And at that point, I did sort of think, well, maybe I'm, I'm, maybe I'm a little bit tipsy. Yes. And I went out. But as soon as I hit the fresh air, 7 a.m. in the morning, it just sort of like sobered me up. And all of a sudden, everything became clear. I was like, I'm going to get in that taxi. I'm going to go home. I'm going to write a book by like 10 o'clock and then I'm going to publish it and everything's going to be fine I'm going to be fine Ashling, you're back in the game never mind I'll find someone like you boom the remix and so I got into this taxi car and I was like hello sir I'm going home don't spare your horses and he was like oh right darling and he was like one of these London taxi car drivers and he was like oh where are you from you Irish and I was like oh I got this all the time London taxi drivers love Irish people like yeah my mother was Irish so I have a fondness for Irish people and I was like oh yes sir we're virtual charming very charming people he's like though I must say a lot of the young Irish people who are coming over to London now they are drinking a lot and I don't want to buy into the stereotype but a lot of them are drinking I was like oh sir it's terrible it's a scourge on society sir and to see the young people throwing away their youth just for frivolous alcohol sir it's awful it's awful and um, and we're chatting completely just through the, the mirror on his you know and we're having a great journey he's chatting away he's like oh yeah my mother was from Roscommon so the mess I was like oh, I know Roscommon sir amazing and we're chatting in a way and I'm looking at him going oh my god you're the father figure I always wanted I saw 
us in a year's time, maybe going on a holiday together, <laughs> adding each other on Facebook, me going around to his house for Christmas. And his wife wouldn't mind because we're so clearly a father-daughter combo. Like, this is all on this journey home. And we were chatting away and I was like, yes, well, you know, I mean, the recession in Ireland, the economy took a big hit, sir. And it was really quite awful. And at that point I was like, oh, I'm going to vomit in this man's car. <laughs> and I was looking at him going, I can't, I can't vomit. He loves me so much. He respects me so much. He hasn't gotten done that I'm drunk yet. So I need to really keep this together, Rattling. And I was like, I decided what I'd do was I'd ask him a question that would require a long answer. And so I was like, sir, how many brothers and sisters do you have? And what are they all doing now? And he basically launched into a story. And as he started telling me, I ducked down out of the way of the mirror and I decided I would vomit into my sleeve. And so I was like, oh, really, sir? How interesting. I was like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, are all of them currently living in England? And do you ever go back to Ireland for a holiday? <laughs> Sorry, sir, it's a bit of something trapped in my throat. And so I basically got out of the car then when we arrived at a journey, like Oscar Pistorius put in his arm, and, like, got out of the car. And I was like, well, sir, I mean, it's been an absolute pleasure. But then slammed the door, and again... As the cold air hit me, I was like, oh my God, I'm going the opposite way around. And he's like, well, it's been a pleasure, darling. I was like, oh, it's fine. And I, ugh, and I vomited onto the side of the street. And he went, oh my God, darling, are you all right? Do you want some help? And I went, no. <laughs> and like this trail of phlegm just came out of the end of my jumper. And it was just so awful. And I looked up at him and like, he looked at me and he was like, kind of registering me like, oh, oh, I see. <laughs> Oh, okay. And also, I assume from his point of view, he wouldn't have known how long I'd been carrying that around for. Because he definitely didn't spot it in the car. But I just sort of panicked and I look up at him and I was kind of like, uh, I'm pregnant. <laughs> and he's like, well, then maybe you'd want to stop drinking if you're pregnant. I was like, oh, no point. Um, so there's my story. There's a lesson in there somewhere, guys. Uh, but thank you very much. I've been Ashling B. Have a lovely evening. Well, I drank too quick on an empty stomach. You got the spin? Yeah, for sure. Oh, no. Oh, too much.
lonely I missed her lonely I have nobody for my own I'm so lonely Now this story begins when I'm 10 years old in 1962 in a little suburb outside of Wichita, Kansas. My mother is on her third marriage, and we're moving to a brand new house in an isolated, new complex. No grass, no people, practically. And the selling point of the whole thing was that each doorbell played a different ten-note tune, like, Strangers in the night are some enchanted evening. So here we are. I can't believe it. It's so desolate. School's going to start in a month. It's August. Every September, my mother has a nervous breakdown since she was 18 until the day she died. And I'm wondering, what am I going to do about sex? Now, you might think a 10-year-old wouldn't be thinking of this kind of thing, but when we were in Hawaii from six months old to six years old, by the time I was three, I'd become fascinated with the human body. By the time I was almost five, I was able to scale the trees outside the complex where we lived on the military base and watch people have sex through Venetian blinds. Thus, my dislike of Venetian blinds, because when they're in the wrong position, you can't see anything. So I'm now very aware through the window peeking and the study of naked bodies what I like, and it's penises. Even at that age, I was not ashamed. Five years old, I like penises. As a birthday present, my father takes me to the military base pool. Now, I had been there often growing up, but this is the first time I really remember it. And oh, to my joy, the showers. See, I was tall for five, so I was at penis height. I was in penis heaven. And when I walked in, of course, I got an erection. And one of the first people near me, not my father, reached over, slapped my hard penis and said, Hey, boring, boring. Apparently, I had a reputation that even as a child, the minute I walked into that room of naked bodies, boing, so they were calling me boing. This was a discovery for me. So I was boring, and I was going to continue on this journey. So six years old, we leave. We go to Texas. Aha. This is when it really started, the Latino effect. Mm-hmm. Had a good time in Texas for four years. And then, third husband, we're moving back to Kansas. Kansas, 1962. The beehives, the hairspray, the polka dots, the, the new houses we were moving into, all different levels, the sunken living room, the kitchen with the picture window, all looking out onto mud. There we are. I'm missing penises already. What do I do? I go around and ring all the doorbells to all those fine little new houses with all those shiny Chevrolets with the fins out back. Some people answered. I got to know that there were maids. No kids, no handsome older gentleman with a little wink in their eye, which I knew that wink, even by 10. I mean, I was young. I was 10, but I knew that look. That look is such a giveaway. So I gave up, and we sat down for our nightly ear cleaning. See, my mother had a tradition. You would lie on her lap, 
and she would take the round end of a bobby pin and meticulously clean the wax out of your ears. She called this think time. This was a time to gather our thoughts and think deep into our lives. Of course, mind, mind was rambling with what am I going to do? What am I going to do? You know, school doesn't start for a month. She's going to go crazy any minute. And then I looked down on the coffee table, and here's this local gazette. And it says, "Strong man escapes from jail by bending bars." That's it. And he's naked. He was arrested naked, escaped naked, is on the loose in our vicinity naked. Here it is, a naked man, loose in our vicinity. This is so exciting. So I just keep looking at the news each day, and a couple of days pass, and they're now calling him the Naked Strangler. It seems that he has broken in early mornings into some of these new homes where there's a maid working. And he seems to have a fetish about strangling them with the ironing cord. He doesn't kill them. He doesn't rape them. He just knocks them out and disappears. So I'm thinking I have to find this guy, you know, because he was beautiful. He had long hair, lean, strong body. I thought, oh, this is for me. He has come to save me. He has come to satisfy my penis need. So. Through talking to maids, there was rumor that he was hide out in the old Catholic elementary school up the ridge by the quarry and the sand pits. In a few days, I leave early, tell my mother I'm going for a walk. I go up over the main road, through the trees. It's kind of a steep climb to that gorgeous old turret building, four stories high. Used to have a stone bridge that connected to the two buildings, which was no longer usable. It had broken down years ago. The rumor was that he was hide out in the part that was inaccessible, that he probably had a way to get in there. And I went into the accessible part of the building, and there on the top floor in the back was a window that looked on to the inaccessible, the home of the naked strangler. I was sure of it. And there was a beautiful green wooden plank. So I toppled it over to the building across, skimming on my knees over, and hesitated. I was a little nervous. I looked around. It was immaculate. No clothes, of course, but there were supplies. There was a neatly made bed, lovely quilt. He obviously took care of his trash. It was sort of like a priest dwelling. I decided to pull the plank in with me, just in case somebody came. I don't know, I was so nervous. So I looked around, I looked around, and then I heard a noise outside. I looked down, and there he was going across the yard. So I thought, oh, he's coming back, so I had to put the plank back. But I put the plank back, and now I don't have a way to get back across. So he comes in, I swear that he was aware of me. Now, I had my little school pack with me, and, you know, I was lightly dressed, and, and I was getting very excited. I got to watch him move around. I'm sure he was aware of me. Oh, and he was naked. He was so naked and beautiful. He had gorgeous cock. It was, well, you know, by that time I had been so deprived. Uh, yeah, it was great. He then turned away, not looking at me yet, opened a can of peaches with a pocket knife, 
turned, looked straight at me, and began eating the peaches, the, the juice dripping from his lips into the can. He just looked at me. Then he looked me up and down, and remember, I'm ten. I took off my clothes. I took off my clothes and stood there, and of course I got excited. And he just watched me, finishing his can of peaches, licking his fingers, the juice, the syrup. And I just stood there. And he moved, and I jumped. And then he turned back around, looked at me, and threw the plank back over. And gave me a sort of look with his eyes, like time to go. So I put my clothes on. My heart was racing so fast, and I was so happy. I mean, this was the start of a great relationship, I thought. <laughs> I thought, we're going to fall in love. We're going to run away together. I'm going to be a legend. Ten-year-old disappears with naked strangler. Maybe I become his accomplice. I didn't know. My heart was beating so fast. I got back home. I couldn't tell anyone what was going on. I spent the next few days, of course, getting the paper as soon as it came. And waiting for him to come because I was certain he was going to come and get me. That's the reason I was there. It was destiny. He was coming for me. Me and the naked man were going to run off together. That was going to happen. I knew it. So I would sneak across the floor and crawl under the kitchen table where you couldn't see me if you were standing up and look out the big picture window which had no curtains because I had seen footprints in the mud. And I knew someone had come and leased its clothes as a clothesline, so I was going to sit it out. Well, the second night of doing that under the kitchen table, my mother's feet passed by. My mother now had made vigil at the window. She would make herself a cup of black coffee, and she would stand watch, too. Not sure even today if she knew I was down there, but the two of us waiting for the naked man. Yeah, explained a lot about my mother. She was waiting for insanity and waiting for a new naked man. I, too, was waiting for the naked man. So I guess a week or two had passed. There were periodic outbursts of his so-called violence, they called it, but I knew he was sweet. I had seen him in the flesh. He didn't harm me. He ate peaches, for God's sake. Well, this went on for a while, and then one night, I hear rustling out in the bushes. This is the only foliage. These were grown bushes they put in front of all the houses. Silly. But there he was. His face, his hands, pressed up against the screen window. So, of course, I instantly stood up, got an erection, made sure I was in the nightlight so you could see the full package. And then he disappeared. So I thought, i got to crawl out, see if he goes to the picture window. I'm sure he's coming for me in the back. got to see if my mother's there. So... Of course she was there. So I'm trying to get myself unaroused so that if I'm spotted, I don't, you know, it was my mother. I said, well, I've got to crawl in under the table. He's going to come to the back window. He's come for me. He's come to take me away. I crawl underneath the table without being caught. And then there's this screech from my sister's bedroom. The naked man appears right against the window in the kitchen. My mother screams. I jump up, bump my head, getting out from under the table. My mother throws her coffee cup through the glass. It all shatters, and the police get called. I'm so excited. He was coming for me. That's proof. He was coming for me. So it turns out later we find that he actually got so close to my sister's screen 
And she being a little tramp at 11, she, by the way, was pregnant at 12 and had her first baby at 13, so that tells you a little bit about her. She touched his body through the screen. That's why she screamed. So I guess all three of us were waiting for the naked strangler. I decide I'm going to go have a talk with him the next day. The police are out. They're measuring the footprints. My mother's telling her engulfing story about how close he got to her and blah, 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 blah. I decide to leave. My mother says, no, you're not going. I threw a fit, went running. I said, I'm never coming back. I'm never coming back. I made it as far as the Schwarzenegger's house around the corner. Then I sat by their woodshed and contemplated and cried a little too, I think, you know. And then I went back to the front sidewalk and in the front door of our house, and I could hear them arguing out in the backyard about me. They were looking for me. They couldn't find me. Now I was in the bedroom. I wasn't going to tell them I was back. Let them look. They were frantically screaming. And then this argument began with my stepfather and my mother. I thought, oh, shit, September's coming. The naked man's got to get me quick. I don't know what's going to happen. I get so angry that they have not found me. I keep hearing them screaming my name, Shashi, Shashi, where are you? I kick the top bunk bed so hard that the springs of mattress fall on me, trapping me under the bed. And they're all out searching for me. I'm so angry, I'm not going to scream for help. Eventually, I do. All right, my mother says, we're leaving tomorrow. Grandma and Grandpa are coming. And they're going to pick us up, and you're going to go stay with her for a while. We're having some problems here. We'd just been there a couple of weeks. It was a brand-new house. So I waited that night. I didn't do the table thing. I just waited at the bedroom, peeked. My mother was at the window. It was a lonely feeling. So the next day, I woke up to screaming. I looked out my window. My stepfather was dragging my mother by the neck through the seated yard as my grandma and grandpa drove up in their new Rambler's station wagon, bright red, and went to grandma's, and I was thinking, this is awful. This is awful. I would find out a few days later that they captured the naked strangler, and he never did really hurt anyone, but he got hurt very badly trying to escape, and was imprisoned again, and that's all I knew. And I thought to myself, well, school starts soon. There'll be gym class. And, you know, Kansas and our family being as inbred as it is, I knew there was a possibility to be a couple frisky cousins roaming about. So I wasn't completely disappointed. And to my surprise, once my sister had her baby at 12, I ended up having an affair with her husband eight years longer than she was married to him. So I'm still in the search of penises, but what I feel from this story is that no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the changes, carry on and a penis is just around the corner.
This is Risk. This is Talking Heads behind me now from Stop Making Sense. It's Slippery People, one of my favorite recordings in the history of recorded sound, my friends. And before that, we heard Shashi Muso with a story we call The Naked Strangler. Before that, we heard a recording that Jeff Barr made when Risk visited the great city of Albuquerque. That was 2014. I was still drinking. And we were working, the two of us, on a Stamps.com song in the evenings. And I had, oh, I don't know, maybe seven shots of vodka on an empty stomach. (laughs) And when disaster struck, Jeff kept the microphone rolling. So if you're listening to Fresh Air this week and you hear Terry Gross pulling out her upchucking compilation, you can write into her, hey, Terry we know where you got that idea. I mean, that woman, the way she rips me off week after week, it makes me live it. Terry, I will destroy you! <clears throat> now then, <laughs> folks, I am genuinely giddy to be talking about our next sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Loot Crate. Loot Crate is so much fun. This is ridiculous, guys. Loot Crate is a monthly subscription box service for fans of geeky things, gamer things, pop culture things. For less than $20 a month, you get four to eight items, licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, one-of-a-kind items. I mean, it's basically like Christmas. You get a box and it's just filled with the coolest toys and t-shirts and gadgets and uh, posters. It's so much fun. It's like Christmas. Once a month, you get a big box, but you also become a part of a community of fans that interact with each other around the unboxing of each month's crate. If you go to lootcrate.com slash risk and enter the code risk, you can save $3 on any new subscription and they guarantee $40 or more in value in every crate. Sometimes it's a lot more. Every month there's a different theme. Themes like Star Wars, Marvel, The Walking Dead, The Legend of Zelda. June's theme will be dystopia, featuring classics like RoboCop, Terminator 2, The Matrix, new favorites, Bioshock Infinite and Fallout 4. So remember, you have until the 19th of June at 9 p.m. Pacific time to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to lootcrate.com slash risk and enter the code risk to save $3 on your new subscription. That's L-O-O-T-C-R-A-T-E dot com slash risk. Then use the offer code risk. Get on over there to check out the super fun, super cool stuff they have today. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from brand newcomer, Jobin Robin Santos. Oh my God, he did such a gorgeous job at our big Boston show recently. But before that, 
going to hear from an old friend of ours, Ann Thomas. Here she is at a New York City show we did a while back with a story we call The Getaway. on the side of the road in Sicily next to my brand new Canadian boyfriend MJ with our thumbs out. It's March 1976 and I met MJ in the train station Palermo about a week ago. He's very tall and slender and blonde. He's trying to make it on the tennis circuit by playing all these kind of entry tournaments and we hit it off because we both really like books and we share a similar kind of wit. And I've been hitchhiking by myself for the last two months, so I am really happy to have a traveling companion, someone I can speak English with really easily and who gets my jokes. Plus, it's really nice to feel a little more secure out there on the road. Now, hitchhiking across Europe was not the original plan. I went to college when I was barely 17, and I was very proud of that until three semesters later and two volleyball seasons later, I had a 1.8 GPA. I had no idea what I wanted to study and I was going farther and farther into debt. So I dropped out. And I knew this was a really big disappointment to my parents. I was the only one of the four kids that didn't finish college. So I have escaped to Europe to try and get out of my shame, but I still feel like a loser. Well, a white florist van stops to pick us up, and the driver's name is Michelli. He's handsome and swarthy, but old, really old, you know, like (laughs) mid-30s. And we have this cheerful conversation in broken English, which ends with, you like, you should spend the night with my grandmother? And MJ are like, yes, love the Europeans, free place to stay, save the money, travel longer. Yes, we would love to stay with your grandmother. So we get to Michelli's hometown and we switch out of his van into his BMW. And then he drives us around town, kind of showing us off like a little mafia don or something. And we get to his grandmother's house to drop off our backpacks and there are a couple of his friends there. There's a big guy who's got the same kind of dusky good looks as Michelli. And then there's this slight guy who's kind of balding young. And Michelli (coughs) says to him, take the car, get some food and some gas and come back here. But he says to MJ and I, we take you to see some caves where no tourists go. And MJ's like, great, we love local stuff. Well, half an hour later after driving into the interior of the island and the road gets narrower and narrower and we park the car and we hike towards the caves and I'm like, well, no wonder that no tourists come out here. And we get to the caves and it's kind of a low, small entrance and we have to get on our hands and knees to go in. And suddenly, like a snapped twig startles a deer, I am afraid. I'm in the middle of nowhere with three strange men about to go into a small enclosed space. Maybe that's not the best idea. So I take a giant step back from the men and I say, you know what, I'm gonna wait out here. And Michelli's face darkens, but he doesn't say anything. 
and the three men and MJ go into the cave, and that's when I think, oh, I hope they don't hurt MJ. <laughs> but 10 minutes later, they come out, they're laughing, they're smiling, and now I feel silly for being afraid. And Michelli says, time to mange. So we drive back out to the coastal road, and we drive into town, and then we drive right through town. And that surprises me, but it's still light outside, and the mood is friendly, and the food is free. And we go to an orchard, and there's a little caretaker's cottage. And we go inside, it's very simple, just like a cot, a very small kitchen area, and a table and chairs. And the bald guy must live here because he immediately busies himself with the cooking. And the big guy, he goes outside and comes back in with a five-gallon gasoline container full of homemade wine and proceeds to fill iced tea glasses to the brim. And Michelli holds up his glass and says, to new friends, yes? <laughs> well, I am 18 years old. I do not know how to drink for a buzz and quit. <laughs> so I'm drunk in no time. Everybody's drinking except the bald guy who's cooking. Well, after dinner, Michelli pulls his chair up close to me to the side and takes my hand and starts talking to me and I, I'm really having a hard time concentrating and understanding him and I'm like, oh, I hate this. I feel like I'm out of control. And then the big guy comes up and he pulls his chair on the other side of me and I feel trapped and crowded by these two men. So I stand up to try and put some distance between us, but I'm clumsy and slow from the wine, and Michelli hooks his arm around my waist and pulls me onto his lap, and his hand slides across my butt and down my thigh. I'm, I'm angry, I push away and off of his shoulders, but the big guy pulls me onto his lap, and his hand cups my breast. And I think, oh God, this is getting out of control. I feel like a rag doll being tossed between the two men. And I call out to MJ, please make them stop touching me, weaving. MJ stands up and says, it's late. We should go back to town. Michelli smiles and says, sure. It's a good time for a drive. And the big guy releases me. It's pitch black and we go outside and we get into the car again and we drive back down to the road, but again, we drive away from town. And now that deer-like fear is back and my mind is screaming and my adrenaline is pumping. Where are they taking us? What is going on here? I don't understand. I'm in the front passenger seat and MJ is directly behind me. I slide my hand down the side of the car and I squeeze his hand so hard to let him know how scared I am. He leans forward and he whispers into my ear, Anne, they have to stop. When they do, open your door and run. 10 minutes later, the car starts to slow down and makes a sharp turn right off the road and it stops. I open my car door, I jump out, but I am so drunk I fall on the ground, my legs are under the car. MJ comes up behind me, lifts me up by my arms and we take off running full out, but suddenly we're tumbling and falling. The road is on a 10 foot high berm and we fall to the bottom of the ditch. The three Sicilian men come out of the car. They start calling our names. At first it's Anne. MJ, is that any way to treat your new friends? But soon it's, where are you? We don't have time for this. And then we hear the pop of a trunk. And now there are flashlights. And Michelli says, no use hiding. 
we find you. But like a couple of moles, MJ and I just burrowed down into the earth, silent and still. After an eternity, we hear car door slam and the car pull away. I start to get up, but MJ puts his hand on my shoulder and pulls me back down and he says into my ear, there are three men, but only two doors closed. So we stay in that ditch and we wait. And about 10 minutes later, a car comes back, a single door open and shuts and drives away. We are so spooked at this time, we stay in that ditch for another hour in case they're gonna come back. And finally, we climb back up onto the road and we walk far away from the village until we find a pension at two in the morning and wake up a very unhappy owner. We rip our passports and money that are strapped to our body, throw it on the counter, and then fall into bed, exhausted from the adrenaline, wine, and fear. The next morning, in the light of day and hungover, I say to MJ, maybe we overreacted. <laughs> maybe they were just taking us to a disco or something. And he says, well, you know, why don't we go back and see if we can find those tire tracks? And I said, great, and you know what? I, I lost my watch. It'd be great, maybe we can find that too. Well, an hour later, we're walking on the road and, and we find tire tracks that lead sharply off the road and we find my watch. And we follow those tracks in the direction that they were headed, but they went nowhere, just an empty beach. They were not taking us home. They were not taking us to a disco. In all likelihood, they were gonna rape me and kill us both. I feel this sudden urge to puke and MJ abruptly sits in the sand and we stare at each other and absorb how close we came to death. And then this wave of exhilaration swept over me. We had an adventure! <laughs> I came to Europe because I thought I was weak, but I find that I am strong, even drunk. I am not a loser. I am invincible. Empowered now, we march back into town. We go into that grandmother's house. We get our backpacks. 10 minutes later, we're standing on the side of the road in Sicily with our thumbs out. It's a very, very dark night. The sky is overcast. There are no stars. There's no moon. A car is moving down the highway. There are no street lamps. Just about the only light that's perceptible are the headlights of the car and a distant glow on the horizon coming from the city of San Antonio. The car is a 1994 Jaguar XJ6 with British racing green paint, tan leather interior, and wood veneer accents. The driver is Linda. The passenger is Justin. Justin is anxious. He hasn't seen Linda in a long time. He wants to connect with her. He, he can't really see her face, though, because she's wearing a dark hooded robe. So he leans towards her. 
she pulls on the cowl, obscuring her face, and pushes on the gas a little bit harder. He wants so desperately to see her. Each time he leans a little bit closer, she just keeps pulling on that cowl and keeps pushing on the gas, and they're going faster and faster, and it's only a matter of time before they completely lose control. He wants to see her. She's not even speaking to him. This is about the moment that Justin wakes up. In 1997, Linda tripped and twisted her ankle. It happens to everyone. It's not a big deal. But then it happens again a couple weeks later, and it happens a third time and a fourth time. So she starts to be a little bit concerned. She goes to her doctor to find out what's causing this. A couple of months later, she and her husband, Jose, call their kids to the kitchen table. Their daughter, Lydia, is seven, and their son, me, I'm 10. They sit us down, and they tell us that there's something very serious that they need to talk about. They say that mom has Lou Gehrig's disease. I've heard of Lou Gehrig. I know that he was a very brave man, and I know that he died of a mysterious illness. I don't really know what to think of this situation because mom is fine. She just has kind of a sprained ankle that won't get better because she keeps fucking it up. My parents tell me that this means that mom is going to die a lot sooner than anyone might have expected. I say, okay, I understand. It seems okay then, but very soon we start to see her decline. She starts to walk around with a cane. It's not a hooked cane like you might see an elderly man walking down the street with. It's a, a hiker's cane. It kind of looks like a ski pole. Her voice starts to slur just a little bit. Then she moves from one cane to two canes and two canes to a walker. She's still driving her car that she loves so much, that green Jaguar. She can't hit the pedals though anymore, so she has this device installed, a lever mechanism that you can use one hand to do the gas or the brake, and you can use your other hand to steer the car. She gets a suicide knob to help her do that very easily with just one hand. She moves from the walker to the wheelchair, the push chair, and eventually she's in a motorized chair. She's slurring her speech more and more now. It's becoming very difficult to understand what she says when she needs to speak to you. So there's a tutor that comes to our house once a week and teaches us some very basic sign language so that she can at least get her needs taken care of she also gets a laptop so that she can use a text-to-speech program just the way that Stephen Hawking does. While this decline is happening and while we're all so completely aware of her impending death, her personality is changing too. She, in her Jaguar, has a six-CD changer 
and she buys six copies of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. So it's always on repeat whenever we're driving around with her. I must have heard that album a thousand times. Her personality is also getting to a point where she has very few fucks to give. We go on a trip one day, me, my mom, and Justin. My mom teaches me about the river rule, which is what happens on this side of the river stays on this side of the river. And I'm about to break this rule for the first time tonight. On this day, we're spending time together in a Texas state park. It's a very nice day. She's still got her two canes, so she can get around very slowly. We get to relate to one another on such a personal level. She's my mother, but she knows that she doesn't have that much time. She's not going to reach that point where I'm a full-grown adult and we can have that real relationship that adults can have with one another. So I'm starting to get very comfortable with the way that I feel about my mom and I start to kind of tease her a little bit in a very playful way, but just enough that I'm kind of being a dick. And that was the first time I ever saw my mom flip the middle finger. She flipped it at me. <laughs> Around 1999, she was diagnosed about two years before this. She hits a plateau. She's still in her motorized wheelchair, but she's been in that chair for months now, and it doesn't seem like that much is changing. Maybe the drug tests that she's been enrolled in are starting to have an effect. And we start to feel pretty good about our situation. So we're at church every single week now. We've moved past that point where it's okay to miss church. Everybody is pretty much staring death in the face, and you don't have a choice anymore. So we're there every single Sunday. For those who aren't Catholic, there's a point in the Mass where the intentions are offered, and there's a list that a lector goes over saying, today we're praying about this. We're praying for Mrs. So-and-so who is in the hospital right now, a member of our parish. And at the end of the defined list, there's a point where the deacon stands up and he says that everyone should offer their own personal intentions, whether they decide to say it aloud or silently hold this prayer. And everyone is praying together for this mass of prayers. And I have one prayer that I'm holding on to every single week. I'm not asking God for a miracle. I know that ALS is a terminal illness. I know that there's no cure. I know that, except with very few notable exceptions, basically everyone dies of this disease in a matter of a handful of years. I'm asking God for my mother to, li to live long enough to see me turn 13. I'm 12 years old. I've been having this prayer at church every single week, just holding on for dear life. In my 12-year-old brain, if you just hold on to a prayer 
very tightly, and if your heart is pure, and if you are a good person, God can make anything happen. I tell my mom one day about the prayer that I've been offering, and she can't show it and she can't tell me, but she is completely crushed. All the time that I've been praying that she will linger on a little bit longer, she's been praying for nature to run its course. She doesn't want this disease to make her into a vegetable that sits around and makes everyone need to take care of her. She wants things to just run their course and be over. She's ready to die. Somehow she makes it to New Year's, 2000. The whole family is together, friends, we're all joyful. It's been a beautiful, beautiful holiday season. Just after this new year, the weather in San Antonio gets a little bit better. It, it should be cold. It should be in the 40s, dreary and rainy outside. But it's beautiful. It's sunny. It's like 74 degrees. My mom at this point has made it to where she can't move her hands enough to use sign language anymore. She can't type on her keyboard anymore. She can't even wrap her wedding ring on the railing of her hospice bed that she now sleeps in, in her bedroom. Every morning, my dad and my grandpa lift my mom out of her bed and they lay down a folding mattress on the back porch. They set her down on that bed and she gets to spend her daytime feeling that warm sun on her skin and watching the clouds go by and hearing the birds chirp and seeing her garden that she had planted years before that she devoted her time to for so long. One day after school, it was a Friday, my sister and I are playing across the street with some of the kids that lived there, the Palcos. My grandfather opens up the door to our house and he calls out to us that it's time to come inside. Somehow, I don't know how, we just look at each other and we know that it's not just time for dinner. We know something's just a little bit off. So we go inside and our grandfather leads us upstairs to my parents' bedroom. My mom is there in her hospice bed, and the hospice doctor has been keeping an eye on her heart rate and her breathing. She can tell us that from what she knows and from her experience, she probably has hours left to live. Everyone takes their turn to walk over to the bedside and to say a goodbye, to kiss her on the forehead, to give her hand a little squeeze. I go over and I kneel down next to the bedside. I hold onto her hand and I whisper into her ear so that no one else can hear me. I tell her that it's okay. I tell her that I'm gonna be okay, that we're all gonna be okay. Knowing full well that it's a lie 
I tell her that if she needs to let go, then she should. In less than 10 minutes, she's dead. In the months that follow, my grades go to hell. I no longer find Texas history important. I don't give a fuck about English grammar. I've lost all my friends. I don't know how to relate to people my own age. I spend my free time during lunch sitting under a tree, and the kids come over the first week that I'm sitting under that tree to ask me what's going on. And I say, I kind of like it here. It's quiet. And they walk away. And after that first week, nobody bothers me anymore. I sat there probably for months. It's hard to say now. My faith went to hell too. Mom died 19 days before my 13th birthday. Friends and family at this time have been telling me that they're having dreams where Linda appears to them as if it's a visitation by her ghost. There's a running theme in a lot of these dreams that she's driving her old Jaguar that she loves so much. And the dreamer is riding shotgun and having one last little Sunday drive to say goodbye. And I'm 13 now, and I want so desperately to have the dream like everyone else. I want to have a posthumous interaction with mom so that she can see me. I'm 13 now. I'm a pseudo-adult. She succeeded in raising me to this point. But I don't get to have that dream. Not for another 13 years. I'm 26 years old now. And I'm riding shotgun in a car. And my mom is driving. We're in the neighborhood where I grew up in San Antonio. The neighborhood where she died. We take a left turn off of the main road onto a road that's the scenic way towards our old house. She used to love going down this road. It had a lot of beautiful, beautiful gardens in the front lawns. And it's springtime and everything's in bloom and beautiful. And everyone has the sprinklers on in their front yard, so it's creating a mist all around the car. And I'm seeing rainbows everywhere I look. I can just see my mom there, and she sees me, and we're smiling at each other. The radio is on, and the Beatles' Two of Us is playing. It wasn't an important song to us when she was living. She was always a Pink Floyd person. But the song is about two people who are the best of friends, and they're headed home, but they don't really care too much about how they're getting there. And it is the most beautiful fucking dream. I wish I could have it every night. I think that it took me 13 years to finally process my grief, to understand the loss of Linda, to really absorb that she was gone, and 
God damn it, if I wasn't happy to have that dream and to have even more music now that will remind me of her. This story has an epilogue. Yesterday, one of Linda's best friends died. Deweese. She was a beautiful person who helped me get through that dark, hard time. And she will be sorely missed. And this story is dedicated to her. Thank you. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is The Beatles behind me now, and we just heard from Jobim Robin Santos. That was his first time ever sharing a story, and he did a great job at our recent Boston show. Thanks again to Loot Crate, the monthly subscription box for geeks and gamers and pop culture nerds. Pop culture is full of brave new worlds and societies in flux that don't always turn out for the best. And June's theme will be exploring the ways that dystopia can happen. Uh, Featuring classics like RoboCop, Terminator 2, The Matrix, and new favorites, Bioshock Infinite and Fallout 4. They've got a cool figure, cool collectibles, and of course their dystoporific monthly tea. You only have till the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific time to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to lootcrate.com slash risk and enter the code risk to save $3 off your new subscription today. That's L-O-O-T-C-R-A-T-E dot com slash risk and enter the code risk. Where are we coming next? Well, on June 17th, Risk is in Philadelphia, PA. Come on out, Philadelphia. On June 18th, we're at the Bootleg Theater. That will be our first ever show at the Bootleg in Los Angeles. On June 22nd, we're at the Bell House in Brooklyn. On June 25th, we're in St. Louis, Missouri. Come on out, St. Louis. That's going to be a heck of a time. On July 8th, We're in San Francisco, California. We're still taking pitches for that one. Pitch deadline is June 10th, and the theme is resonant. On July 27th, we're back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. On July 30th, we're at the Bootleg again in Los Angeles. On August 5th, we are in Toronto. I can't wait to get back to Toronto. Wonderful city. Pitch us, Toronto, folks. The theme is disaster. Go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. 
If you love what we do and you want to help us out, go to the Support Us page at risk-show.com. And if you want to learn anything about storytelling, either for your business or just for yourself personally, go to thestorystudio.org. That's where all our training, online, in person, one-on-one, it all happens there at thestorystudio.org. Folks, Today's the day. Take a risk. You better believe it. Goodbye. The fuck are you doing? It's one delay after another. No, no, we're gonna get this motherfucker away. Then we'll concentrate on dinner. God. <laughs> what?